I want to start today with a question for you to consider as you're sitting in your seats. What direction are you heading in life? What direction are you heading in life? And I don't mean just what are you doing today after the service or what's on your calendar for the upcoming week or month, but what is the overall direction of your life? What are you running towards? The late Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, compared the direction you're going in to climbing a ladder. And in commenting on the importance of heading in the right direction, he said this, If the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. If the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. So how can you ensure that the ladder you're on is leading against the right wall? In the passage we're looking at today, we're going to see a key component of heading in the right direction is who you follow, who you keep your eyes on, who you put yourself around. It goes a long way to determining the direction that your life takes. If the people you follow are all climbing a ladder against the wrong wall, guess which ladder you're probably going to find yourself ending up on. If you want your life to go in a certain direction, you have to put yourself around people who are also heading in that direction. And what we're going to see today is that there are basically two directions that your life can take. And they're not what we might think. We might think, you know, in a kind of service like this, a Christian gathering, that the two directions your life can take is the religious direction and the irreligious direction. You can be one of the religious types or you can be one of the non-religious types. But what we're going to see today is actually religion and irreligion, as attractive as both can be for different types of people, are both actually paths away from Jesus. They're both different ways of running away from him. The path to life, however, is the path towards Christ. So imitate those who are running towards Jesus. And if you're wondering, now why would I want my life to head in that direction? It's a good thing you asked, because that's one of the things we're going to talk about. But the first thing we're going to talk about is how you would imitate those who are running towards Jesus. So the how and the why. That's what we're going to see in the passage we're looking at today. So Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. You can read along with me in your Bibles. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So first, how do you imitate those running towards Christ? And the first thing we see here is that you have to watch who you watch. He says in verse 17, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says, keep your eyes on them because you become who you behold. You become who you behold. What you keep your eyes on, the people you watch intently, are the people you tend to inevitably become like. Now generally, and in the time that Paul's writing here, that means it's the people you're around, right? You can't keep your eyes on people you can't see. 
But one of the interesting features of life today is that media has made it possible for us to keep our eyes on all kinds of people that you've maybe never even met, right? Television, movies, you can watch the lives of people pretty intently, and thanks to Netflix, you can watch it over and over and over again over multiple hours without ever having met the person. Thanks to social media, you can watch the lives of people who live on the other side of the globe, who maybe you have met before, but otherwise you would have had no possibility of contact with. Now, in a sense, this has actually really helped us because we've become better able to watch, right? And that's a good thing, to keep your eyes on the lives of others. But one of the challenges of it is it's also made us a little more passive. Like, we kind of take all that in and forget the fact that you become who you behold, right? What you're watching actually affects the kind of person that you become. Language is one of the easiest ways to see this. So some of you know my favorite television, sh- television show ever is The Wire, And I was talking with a friend of mine who also is a big fan of The Wire, and he pointed out that when he watches the show a lot in a given time period, he starts talking and thinking like the characters in the show. That's not all bad. There's some good things to learn from them, but there's certainly some aspects that are not exemplary, like a lot of them are kind of crime lords and that kind of thing. So you start talking and thinking like that, you you know, it's it's a little concerning. Um, I was listening to an interview that Keegan-Michael Key did with The New Yorker, and he was saying that when he talks to The New Yorker, he speaks differently than he talks when he's home with his friends that he grew up with in Detroit. I've noticed this about myself. I grew up in a small town in central Pennsylvania. When I'm home with the people I grew up with there, the way I talk, the way I act is a little different than the way I interact with a lot of the people I know here in Philadelphia. Now, you can look at me and call me a phony, and you can call Keegan-Michael Key a phony and say that we're just posers or whatever. And there is a point at which it becomes disingenuous, right? But it's more so just part of being human. Part of being human is you're affected by the people that you're around. You become who you behold. And so it's really important that you watch who you watch, that you watch what you're taking in. If in the TV shows you love, the hero of the show is always the one who gets the girl who ends up in some kind of romantic relationship, guess what? Your life will start imitating and running after. If your Instagram feed is full of exotic travels and six-pack abs, guess what? You're going to probably start emulating, right? And start imitating. If your heroes in life are those with fame and success, guess what direction your life is going to start to head in? Guess what wall your ladder is going to be propped up against? Well, the alternative this passage gives us is to keep your eyes on those who walk according to Paul's example, the author of this letter. And he's told us a little bit about his example in the passage just before this one, in verses 12 through 16. So if you look up just a little bit on your page here, he starts by telling us what his example isn't, what the example he doesn't want you to follow. Verse 12 is, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So he's not saying, I want you to follow the example of perfect people because there are no perfect people on earth. And I'm not just saying that kind of like, you know, as a general principle, but there's only ever been one perfect human, Jesus Christ, and bodily, he's not here on earth. Like, he he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so you can't actually find the walking Jesus Christ and follow his example, perfect as he was. And sometimes that bothers us. Sometimes we think it would be great if Jesus was here and we could just know him and follow him. And that makes sense. Like, it's a totally reasonable desire. But Jesus, when he was leaving, actually told his disciples that it would be better if he left. Because as great as it would be to be around Jesus all the time, only a few people would get to experience that. Like, when he was on earth, how many people actually got to see him? Maybe hundreds, you know, in this small area of the Middle East. 
But what Jesus said he would do when he went to his Father is he would pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. So that all throughout the world, and and this has happened like 2,000 years later, on all major continents that people live on, there are people running towards Jesus. Which means as long as you are around a true biblical church, you can find people running towards Christ. And you can find examples to follow, people to imitate who are running towards him. Because you're not looking for perfection. So Paul says, I'm not perfect, right? I haven't attained that, but you can imitate me. Paul says to the Philippians, there's people among you and in your church who are not perfect, but you can imitate them. Why? Because he goes on in verses 13 and 14 to say what he does do, right? He says, I'm not perfect, but here's what I do do. I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on, in verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, you you don't imitate my perfection, I don't have that. You imitate my direction. My life is heading in a definite direction. And the direction is away from sin, forgetting what lies behind, confessing, repenting, and running towards Christ. So there are no people out there who aren't sinning, but there are people out there that are fighting sin, right? It's the difference between embracing my sin and fighting against it. It's the difference between resisting Jesus and running towards him. And Paul's saying, in my life, what I am consistently doing is straining forward to the goal of knowing Christ Jesus. That his glory would be the thing that shapes my life. That being one with the suffering, died, and resurrected Savior would be the thing I want for myself more than anything else. And no, I don't do that perfectly. But yes, it's an example that I actually want you to follow and that I want you to imitate. And it's not usually hard to spot when this is the thing that's central to a person's life, when this is the direction that they're heading in. Like usually if you, just, if you took a poll of five, ten people who know someone well and you just ask them, based on what this person spends their time on, what they talk about, what they love, what gets them excited, what gets them sad, what would you say is the main direction their life is heading in? You tend to just catch that from people, right? Like th- this person's life is headed in a definite direction. They are running towards something. One mistake, though, that's common in that is thinking that just because someone knows a lot of things or has a certain position— That means they're running towards Christ. I have a funny experience with people when they find out that I'm a pastor, and if you've done this to me, don't feel bad. It's it's understandable, but people will tell me, feel a need to tell me something like, oh, my uncle's a pastor too. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, you know, good for your uncle, (laughs) you know. But there's kind of this idea that, um, well, they have a position, right? And so that should impress you somehow, and that should impress us somehow. Or this person went to Bible college, or this person's been, a, been a professing to follow Jesus for a really long time. It's not, just not the main thing that Paul's emphasizing here, right? He's saying, I want you to follow those whose lives are headed in a certain direction by the way they walk, those who walk according to the example that you have in us, not those who have a lot of answers necessarily, Not those who have even been at this for a really long time. Not those who have impressive position titles. That's not the stuff I want you to imitate. I want you to imitate a direction in life. Usually we think that I want to follow the person who has all the answers because we assume the problem I have is I don't know enough. I don't have enough information. Now in the Bible, that's always part of the equation, right? If you're running towards Christ, you're going to want to know more about him, right? You're going to want to grow in knowledge of him. 
the assumption of the Bible is what we need most is not a transformation necessarily of what we know, but of what we love. We need to be heading in a different direction and consistently oriented in that direction. And that kind of love is the kind of thing that's more caught than it is taught. You can learn a lot about stuff by just reading a book, by getting new information, but you can't learn love by reading a book. Like, even if you thought about how do you develop a relationship with another person, right? You wouldn't just read a book about that person. You would have to actually spend time with them and know them and catch things from them. And so what Paul is saying is don't look at the, look at the ladder and find the person at the top rung. It doesn't matter where they're at on the ladder. Find the person whose ladder is against the right wall and put yourself around those people. Keep your eyes on them. Watch who you watch. What a person loves comes out in the way they walk, in the way they live. That's the kind of person you want to be following. So if you want your life to go in a certain direction, you need to watch others whose lives are heading in that direction. A book simply will not do it. It's not the kind of thing you can learn through information transfer. In short, what this is saying is you need a church. You need a community of people who are running towards Christ if your life is going to head towards Christ. And that's, this is a big part of why at City Light we have city groups, the thing that I mentioned before earlier in the service. It's that by being here for this hour or so on Sunday morning, we think there's a lot of amazing things that God does in this time. But you just don't get to watch the way people walk in this time. You don't get to share much of your life with those people. And it's why we encourage people who are even in city groups to spend time with each other outside of those groups so that you can just walk through a lot of life together. And see what it's like to be around people who are running towards Christ. Imperfectly, yes. But who are running in the right direction. Whose ladders are propped up against the right kind of wall. You need these kinds of relationships with people who are running towards Christ. If you want your life to be heading in that direction as well. Now every time I bring that up, people tell me, but I'm so busy. And I'm not here to guilt you about that, okay? There's a lot of good stuff to do. and There's a lot of stuff that Jesus has probably assigned to you that is worth doing. People are busy with good stuff. That's not a bad thing necessarily. But I just consider this, though. Do you have time to watch TV? Do you have time to be on social media? Do you spend time around people? The reality that you can't avoid is you're watching someone. You are keeping your eyes on someone. And you will become who you behold. So if you don't find a way to put yourself in the relationships with other people who are running towards Christ, you're going to become who you behold. Your life is going to head in a certain direction. Your ladder is going to be propped up against some kind of wall. Let me clarify a little bit of what this passage is not saying and what I'm not saying. It's not saying spend all of your time with other Christians. Only have relationships with other people who are running towards Christ. If you run towards Christ, Jesus is the one who is always running towards lost people. It says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was running after those who religious leaders called sinners, who religious leaders said, no, you're not supposed to spend time with them. So of course, he's going to take us towards those same people if we're running towards him. But he always goes to those people not to imitate them, but to serve them and to bless them. There's a key difference there. For example, one of Jesus' first followers was a guy named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, and tax collectors were really unpopular at that time among the Jewish people that Jesus came from because they extorted money from them. They were greedy. Now, if Jesus went to Matthew and said, you know what, his, his way of life may be just as good as mine. I may become like him. He may become like me. We'll just see what happens. And he became greedy like Matthew. He would have been totally unable to love Matthew, right? 
Because greed will make you competitive with someone else, and he would have been trying to one-up him the whole time. So it was actually because Jesus didn't imitate Matthew that he was able to love Matthew. And if you want to love people, the best thing you can do is imitate those who are running towards Christ, to become like Jesus. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, describes the church as a counterculture for the common good. You have to be a counterculture, right, imitating something else, but for the good of the world around us, for the common good. What this also doesn't mean is that you can't learn from people who aren't running towards Christ, that you can't learn from non-Christians. There's plenty of people who don't know Jesus. There's people, you're probably here today, who don't know Jesus, who are kinder, who are more generous, who know more about certain things, who are better at certain things than Christians are. Learn from them, right? There's a lot of gifts that God's given outside of those who are following Christ. But you just have to understand that those lives are heading in different directions. And I don't say that to be a jerk or to be judgmental or whatever. It's just like I'm stating the obvious. If you're not following Jesus, the glory of Jesus is probably not the motive of your life, right? And so if you are and you want to learn something from someone who's not, you just have to understand their ladder is up against a different wall. But they may be climbing it in some ways that are interesting and ways that you can learn from and use on your own. If you work for Reebok and Nike's doing something cool in their marketing department, you can learn from that. But you're going to have to change it a little bit, right? You're going to have to take the swoosh off of it because that's not going to work so well for your bosses at Reebok, okay? I've learned a lot about health and fitness from people who are not Christians, right? But I also have to understand that the glory of Jesus is not their ultimate goal. So it's going to end up looking a little different for me than it does for them. Last thing I'm not saying is become a shopper of Christian community and find the most perfect examples for you and yourself so that you can follow them. Paul is writing to the Philippians here saying, join in imitating me in verse 17. He's saying, I want you to do this together. So he's not saying to the Philippians, hey, look at your church and decide if you have good enough examples there. And if you don't, go find a better one. He's saying, no, there's people around you who are running towards Jesus. Look, look at them, right? Set your eyes on them. So if you have an opportunity to be around someone who's much older than you, who's walked through life and raised kids and loved Jesus, praise God. Spend time with that person. But if that person's not there, it's not a reason to break fellowship. You're not looking for perfection. Perfection's the thing you don't want, right? If you find someone who's never confessing sin, who's got nothing wrong in their lives, run in the other direction. Because that's not a person who's running towards Christ. What you want is someone who's forgetting what lies behind, striving forward to what lies ahead. Where they're at on the ladder is not as important as what wall their ladder is propped up against, what direction their life is heading in. These are the kinds of people that you want to be around. We can't join in imitating this example together if we're not together, if we're all just thinking of ourselves and what's best for me. And yet, if we're honest, that comes natural, right? It comes natural to me. I think what's best for me What's, what's the situation that's going to work out for my, for my interests? So why run towards Christ at all? This is the big question, right? Why imitate those who are running towards Christ? And this passage gives us two reasons. The first, the alternative is death. And second, the end is life. So verses 18 to 19 go on. And they say, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. What Paul's saying is that the only alternative to running towards Christ is running away from Christ. And if you run away from Christ, if you go down that path, 
the end is destruction. Now, that sounds harsh, right? But hear the way he's saying this. He says, many of whom I tell you, and now I tell you even with tears. This isn't kind of the angry, arrogant, braggadocious, here's why everyone else is wrong and dumb. It's tears in his eyes. Like It kills him to think. There are people out there who are on a path that is not going to end well for them. On a path to destruction. Like can, It's so otherworldly to think that way. Like, can you imagine a politician with tears in his or her eyes saying, I just, I just think the other party is really going to hurt themselves and the country if we head in this direction, and it kills me to think that. No, like, we're used to the, here's why they suck and why they're wrong and why I'm angry and why I'm awesome. That's not what's happening here. That's not what Paul's saying about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's more like when you have someone you care about who's addicted to, addicted to drugs, struggling with drug addiction, something like that, and they think it's going to give them life, and you just know this is a path to destruction. And if you really love such a person, you know it doesn't do you any good to act like there's not a problem, to act like the path they're heading down is just as good as the path you're heading down. All roads lead to Rome. You do your thing. I do mine. Who am I to judge? And so that's not what Paul does here. Because he didn't make this stuff up, right? It'd be arrogant of him if he said, you know, I got some great ideas, and if you don't follow them, you're going to hell. That's arrogant, okay? But Paul's saying, I didn't make this stuff up, right? Like, I I didn't create these paths and then say, let's send all the people I don't like over here. Jesus himself rose from the dead. Like, we believe that. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so he's dealing with that, and he's, this is a reality that Jesus has given us, that no one comes to the Father but through him. As C.S. Lewis put it, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself, because it is not there. There is no such thing. And it doesn't love people to pretend that it's there. We didn't make it up. So there's two alternatives. There's running towards Christ, where there's living as enemies of the cross of Christ. And verse 19 describes what the lifestyle of one who lives as an enemy of the cross of Christ is. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, the interesting thing about these is if you saw these traits in a person, they could actually look attractive. They could actually look like something you might want to imitate. In fact, the people Paul's writing to, um, the people he's talking about here for the Philippians were probably a set of religious leaders very religious group. Their God is their belly, meaning they, they're very strict about the kinds of foods they eat. They only eat the clean foods and not the unclean foods. So they're very upright, which in that time would have been seen as admirable and something worth emulating. It says that they glory in their shame, so they have some kind of outward glory. They're maybe exalted as very respected teachers in the community. They maybe have gotten financial gain even through their teaching. So it says that their minds are set on earthly things. They become lucrative and successful. That's kind of a religious way of, of walking away from Christ. But there's also an irreligious way of doing these things, where the God of the belly is sensuality, not so much religious observance, but pleasure. 
where there's a glory, but it's not necessarily in my religious high standing, but my standing in the eyes of the community, in the eyes of my corporation, or in the eyes of the, the whatever people I identify with. And their mind is set on earthly things. They have goals for ambition and success, and they've climbed the ladder in their respective fields. And so whichever direction this heads in, the point is they're both actually paths away from the cross, away from the cross of Christ. Because the thing that both of those lifestyles have in common is they're both saying, I can control my life and be happy without having to depend on Christ, without having to depend on God. And that can't help but make you an enemy of the cross. Because the message of the cross is the opposite of that. The message of the cross is that we were all headed for destruction. And the only way we could be saved from it is if someone was destroyed for us. And that's what God has done in becoming a human in Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, Jesus took the destruction that actually all of us naturally deserved for having turned away from God. The message of the cross is no, you can't save yourself. Not through your religion, not through your irreligion. None of it works except Christ. You need him. And so both of these end up making us enemies of the cross of Christ and enemies of God's grace. Many of these things are even good things. Religious observance, not bad. A lot of success, not bad. But when they become God things, they become things that destroy us. The belly is a good thing, but when your God is your belly, it leads to destruction. And you can see evidence of this in life. Um, It's kind of all over the place, but it's obscured sometimes. And media's, this is one of the limitations of media. Like, a TV show can have a character making really bad decisions and just write a happy ending into the show. Social media can give you a highlight reel of someone's life, but never show you the emptiness that that person may be feeling on the inside. And so, the reality is, if you set your mind on your kids and nothing higher, you'll smother them. If you set your mind on your career and nothing higher, you'll become a workaholic. If you set your mind on your bank account and nothing higher, it will never be full enough. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Even when it looks like the path away from Christ is the path to life, it is a path to death. It is a path to destruction. Even if the person on that path is a professing Christian who says they know a lot, who has a certain position, if they're not running towards Christ, if it's not evident in the way they walk that Jesus is the central focus of their life, don't follow that path. Don't emulate that example because you will become who you behold. And this path is heading on a path to death. So imitate those who are running towards Christ because the alternative is death. But the flip side is, the path of running towards Christ, the ladder that's propped up against that wall, ends in life. So look with me at verse 20. But, he says, this is the end of those who are, whose ladder is on that wall. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says we have a citizenship. We belong to something else, not worldly things, not the world that is destined to perish, but to this heavenly kingdom. And heaven is the place where God's will is kept. So when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, the first thing he teaches them to pray is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea is heaven is the place where the world is the way it's supposed to be, where love, mercy, justice, wisdom reigns supreme, and there is peace with God and peace with one another. And he says, for those who have trusted in Jesus, you have become a citizen of that heavenly kingdom. And it's not because you're better, actually, than anyone else. If, if heaven is the place where God's will is done, there's really only one person who's a kind of natural citizen of that kingdom, and that's Jesus Christ himself. But through faith in Christ, you become one with him, and what is his becomes yours. So in the same way in the U.S., if you're not a U.S. citizen, but you marry a U.S. citizen, you automatically become one, though you weren't born one. Through faith in Christ, we become citizens of the heavenly kingdom, though we're not naturally that in and of ourselves. We become grafted in to this heavenly citizenship. And what that means is, for the Christian, the question of who am I, the question of who do I belong to, the ultimate answer, above all the other smaller answers, is that you belong to the the heavenly kingdom. That's the kingdom you are ultimately a citizen of. Anytime you ask the question, who am I? Part of what you're asking is, what tribe do I belong to? Who are my people? And how you answer that question goes a long way to determining who you imitate, what kind of people you look up to. And the beautiful thing about the heavenly kingdom is it's described as containing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it doesn't do away with even the tribes that you belong to here on earth. If you're born Irish, you're still an Irish Christian, right? But that Christian identity is the more central one than your Irish identity or than your white identity or than your black identity or than your Hispanic identity or than your male identity or than your female identity, your poor identity, your rich identity, right? All things that are true about you, all things that aren't done away with, but all things that are transcended by this greater kingdom that you are now a citizen of. So that what it should do is create the kind of person who can actually be critical even of their own tribe, who can see these are the weaknesses that we have, and who can acknowledge the strengths and the things God is doing in the tribes of others, and who can therefore have a unity possible between different tribes that being citizens of the heavenly kingdom makes possible. It's the exact opposite of the way we normally operate, where I can see the weaknesses of the tribes around me, but never the ones in my, of my own. I have a fly, just... <laughs> I'm going to swat that for the rest of the sermon, okay? Get, get, get used to it. Um, for me, before I was a Christian, the main tribe I identifi- identified with was I was a Penn State football fan, okay? When I was nine years... <laughs> hey, it's cool, it's cool. I'm still part of that tribe, okay? Just, just got a bigger one. Um, I went to my first game when I was nine. My dad went there. My uncle had season tickets. That was my thing. And so who did I look up to? Who were my heroes? The guys who had been to all the bowl games, Right? the guys who could quote stats from the 80s, the guys who had this one's jersey and this guy's autograph, and that becomes the thing that you end up living for. But if the heavenly kingdom is your ultimate tribe, those are the people that you should end up emulating. And citizens of heaven have a unique privilege that this passage goes on to tell tell us about. It says, our citizenship is in heaven, and citizens of heaven have this coming for them. And this is the one thing that no other tribe can claim, okay? This is the one thing that citizens of heaven only have. They have a savior, Citizens of heaven await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, if this thing is headed for destruction, and every, kind of everyone agrees on that, right? Like even scientists and Christian theologians both agree that our bodies and the world are going to be destroyed at some point. 
Who can save from that destruction? Who is the Savior? It's the only one who can save from that destruction is the one who went through it himself already and who came out victorious on the other side. The one who died and three days later rose from the dead. The one who was given the name above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who has the power, as this passage says, to subject all things to himself. That is the only one He is the only one who has the power to save from destruction. And if you are a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, this is what's at the end of the ladder. Salvation from the coming destruction, from the one who has already conquered, the one who has already reigned, the one who the pangs of death and the grave could not hold. That's who you're awaiting if you're a citizen of this heavenly kingdom. You don't see him bodily today. You can't go find him and just follow his example. But one day, he will return bodily. And he's told us this. And he says, when he returns, he will return with great power and great glory. There will be no more questions about who this Jesus is. There will be no more wondering, well, maybe he was just a nice guy. Maybe he was just, it'll be undeniable. He will have such majesty, such infinite might and power and beauty that it will be undeniable to everyone. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what this is saying is he will use that very power to take your lowly body, whether it's a dead body at that time or whether you're living and just decaying when Jesus returns, and he will transform you in some mysterious way to be like him, to be like his glorious body, to Inherit a body that will never perish, that will never fade, that shines with the same kind of beauty that Jesus himself shines forth with. That's what's at the end of this ladder. The one who will come and transform our lowly bodies, it says in verse 21, to be like his glorious body. That is a glory that lasts. That is a glory that will never be turned to shame. No other ladder, no other wall leads to that kind of glory. You can't watch Jesus today, but you can watch who you watch. You can watch who you imitate. You can't watch a perfect example of Jesus today, but you can imitate and you can watch those who are running towards Christ, those whose ladders are propped up against that wall. If you do that, it may not lead you to much glory on earth. That's in God's hands, okay? Some people follow Jesus and they end up being rich and famous. God does that, okay? If that's you, no guilt. I'm not judging you. Some people follow Jesus, and nobody knows their name. Few friends, few people that they love, a church community that knew them, small, unimpressive. Both of them, in the end, will have lowly bodies. Both of them will die, and both of them will be transformed into the likeness of Christ, to be like his glorious body. When you see the person who has it all, don't just follow that example. Don't just say, whatever they do, I'll do so I can head in that direction. Don't buy it. The path away from Christ is a path to destruction. If you set your mind on getting glory on earth, it will end in your shame. But if you imitate those who run towards Christ, however low that brings your body, if it leads to suffering, if it leads to death, 
your body will be transformed one day to be like the glorious resurrected body of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.